This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. You would turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. This morning I had um, asked y'all to pray for um, Joshua and Brenda, and uh, she did lose the baby. And uh, so just appreciate, if you would, lifting them up in prayer. Um, they're still at the hospital now because they have to, she has to, uh, they have some kind of medication they have to administer to her before they let them go home. So, uh, they are pretty, uh, disappointed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. Um, it says a song that uh, Jordan was just singing. Lord, uh, it's not <clears throat> because of who we are. It's not because of what we've done. It's because who you are. Because of what you've done. We're undeserving of grace and we're deserving of your wrath. Yet, um, while we were yet in a rebellious state, You loved us, sent Your Son into the world to live and die for us. So, Father, we, we thank You. Thank You for Your love. We do pray, especially for uh, Joshua and Brenda tonight, asking for Your comfort. Lord, um, just trusting in Your wisdom, infinite wisdom, and pray that, Lord, that's exactly their uh, their attitude to trust in You, rest in You, find comfort in You. And, Father, as we open Your Word before us tonight and Look at this section um, of text, Lord, we pray that You would uh, guide this time together, guide the the, uh, uh, proclamation here of Your Word. I ask that You enable me to deliver the message You want delivered. Grant clarity and accuracy, I pray, Lord, may it all be for the edification of Your people the salvation of any that might be here and not know You in truth. And ultimately, Lord, for Your honor and glory. We do pray. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9. Now, this is really going to be um, basically part two of this morning because... Uh, there were just some things I wanted us to consider that uh, that you know I ran out of time on. Um, I, 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 y'all probably heard it said. I've heard it said. Um, don't know who said it originally, but uh, if if you if you can't say what you want to say, you know, 
clearly, and I don't know if this is true, but it sounds good. If you can't, if you can't say what you want to say in 20 minutes, then uh, you're, you're just unprepared. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but I confess to, uh, to being uh, unprepared and, and uh, not up to the task. I think I told you all before, but <laughs> that was one of the uh, commencement, uh, commencements when you graduate, right? Yeah, they, they do one at the beginning of this thing, and then they do that. Yeah, okay, so the commencement's at the end of the... When you graduate, one of the commencement sermons I, I heard Al Mohler give uh, at Southern Seminary, and I heard it over the internet, you know, downloading the audio. But uh, I don't remember the title, but that was the gist of the whole thing. And he's got a, a whole, uh, and I'm told this is Southern Seminary in Louisville is the largest seminary in the world now. And he got a whole slew of graduates there, and he, he told them, um, you're not up to the task. Because that's true of anybody that goes forth preaching the gospel. And, of course, that's what he went on to say. You're, you're not on, up to the test, so you must depend on God. All right, so, Lord willing, that's, that's what we're going to do here tonight. This is, a, as I said this morning, that's, it's a tough passage, um, but I do want to uh, mention a couple of more things, Lord willing, before we leave it. So I'm going to read again um, verses 14 through... 17, and um, talk about uh, probably a little little more in detail some things I mentioned this morning. And this, again, is right after uh, Jesus calls Matthew to be one of the twelve. And Matthew um, rose and followed Jesus. That's verse 9. And now Matthew is giving him a feast at his house. Uh, uh, Matthew himself doesn't say where it is, but we know that from other accounts in, in uh, Luke 5 and, and Mark 2, uh, that this is at Matthew's house. He's, he's giving a feast for Jesus, and it's at this feast that uh, many tax collectors and sinners uh, begin to gather, and they're, they're eating with Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners uh, are, are attracted. No doubt, as I've mentioned, uh, I think it's... Uh, Probable that that Matthew is spreading the word here, so he he has a feast for Jesus, and he invites other tax collectors and sinners, and uh, sinners here being basically um, people who just don't live really good moral upright lives, especially those who are considered to be immoral by the Pharisees. Um, I think that's kind of the context here because Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and dealing with their criticism. And they have this moral standard um, that they have raised up. It's a, it's a false righteousness, of course. But anybody that doesn't meet their standard, they see as sinners because they see themselves as righteous and the others as sinners. And so when, when Matthew says here, tax collectors and sinners, he's, he's talking about... Uh, well, to just kind of put it in modern terms, what we would call the low lowlifes okay, of, of, of society. Tax collectors, now they may have lived well in a monetary sense, but they were uh, thought very bad uh, by, the, uh, by the Jewish culture because they were viewed as traitors. So, so Matthew was probably wealthy, just like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man. Uh, Probably wealthy, but a lot of it probably, a lot of his wealth probably came from cheating people. 
And so they, when I say they were lowlifes, I don't necessarily mean they were poor. I mean uh, some of them were, and, and some of them, like the tax collectors, were just uh, underhanded and cheats. And they were viewed as traitors because they were working for the Roman government, uh, a foreign government that's oppressing the people of Israel. So, these are undesirables, in other words. Tax, tax collectors and others who are considered uh, undesirable by, undesirables by the religious elite. And so here Jesus is eating with them, talking to them. Now, I, I do want to say this. I, I don't think the Scripture ever teaches that Jesus compromises in the sense of participating in, in well, we know that He didn't participate in sin. And, and I think you can cross a line. Um, had a guy say to me one time, um, you know, these people would come around and, and uh, uh, they wanted to be around Jesus and, and, and Jesus fellowshiped with them. And they didn't come to hearing talk. They just, you know, whatever. Came, I probably was free meal or whatever. But, you know, the more I got to looking at Scripture and all, and, and Jesus is constantly teaching, and I got to seeing and thinking, they did come to hear Him talk. They did come to hear Him talk. In other words, He's not, when, when we talk about Jesus, He's being accused of here, um, basically hanging out in, in a wrong way with drunkards and gluttons. Well, this is not what He's doing. He's, he's, he's not out on the town partying with uh, immoral people. He is giving them the gospel. They're having a meal, and Jesus is giving them the gospel, and they are drawn. They are coming to hear Him speak and to see Him do what He does. So He's not compromising. Uh, he's, he's, he's not doing any, anything of that sort. But He is in their company. He's among their company uh, while He's teaching them, which that always helps, right? Especially since they didn't have telephones and uh, that kind of thing back then. It was best to be in their company so you could talk to them. Uh, so he's not compromising, but the Pharisees are accusing of this, and they're indig- indignant. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus makes it clear um, that he's on a mission of mercy here, like we talked about last week. And he tells the Pharisees, you go and learn what this means in verse 13. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quote from uh, Hosea uh, 6, I think it's Hosea 6.4. Um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying these are the people that I came for. Of course, I'm. Of course, I'm uh, in the presence of sinners. Of course, I'm. I'm talking to sinners and teaching sinners because this is the whole reason I came. I'm on a mercy mission. I came to save sinners. Well, the, the Pharisees are besides themselves because uh, they don't see themselves as sinners. They see themselves as righteous. Jesus knows that. He implies that in His statement, verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So he's making that little uh, uh, categorizing there. The well and the sick are, in verse uh, 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's, 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 he's putting people in these two categories. Righteous, sinners, well, and sick. Why is he doing that? Because this is the way the Pharisees think. I mean, the, the truth is, nobody out there is well, spiritually. The truth is, nobody out there is righteous, 
And Jesus knows that, and He's not saying that there are. Uh, you know, just on the surface level, His statements seem to imply that, right? But that's not what He's saying. He's, he's, he's wording it that way because this is the way the Pharisees think. They see themselves as well. They see themselves as righteous. And so Jesus is saying plainly to them, I didn't come for you. Because you don't see a need for a Savior. You see yourselves as having obtained righteousness. You don't, you don't need uh, what we call today an, an alien righteousness. A righteousness from outside of you. Now, the truth is, again, every human being needs an alien righteousness applied to their account because none of us are righteous. But they don't see that. They see themselves as well and righteous. And so Jesus says, look, I came for sinners. I came to call sinners to repentance. And now, verse 14 the disciples of John, who I, I think, you know, they're in this to a degree. Uh, I said this morning, uh, what, what we see in the Pharisees, hypocrisy. What we see in the disciples of John, I'm assuming, because they are disciples of John, their motives are right. That is, they, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do what's right for the right reasons, love the Lord. But they're confused here. Because they too have, have been living a life um, of righteous, what's considered to be righteous activity. You, you do certain things, you act certain ways, and that's righteous. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. It, it's, it's definitely more righteous in one sense to love your wife as Christ loved the church if you're a husband than it is to abuse your wife. I mean, that, to abuse your wife would be evil. To love her would, as Christ loved the church would certainly be a righteous act. But there, see, we're talking about a kind of practical righteousness. In other words, it's just the right thing to do. It's doing right. But even that doesn't earn you any points with God. It doesn't earn you salvation. I think they're seeing, especially the Pharisees, they're seeing it more in that sense. We do certain things and God is well pleased with us. They, they see themselves as being inherently righteous. And on the other hand, the, uh, the disciples of John are just committed to doing right. And they see Jesus and His disciples doing things differently and they don't understand why He's doing things differently. So, so they come to Him and they say, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? Again, a, a, a religious uh, reference to religious activity there. Fasting, good thing to do. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, now they know that here's, here's Jesus at a feast. First, the Pharisees are indignant because uh, he's feasting with um, tax collectors and sinners, people that they don't think are worthy of his or their attention. And now the disciples of John are just confused because uh, they're thinking, you know, we, we are really devoted to a strict lifestyle. And, and they've probably been hanging out for a while. I mean, I, in other words, I don't think they would bring this up over one feast. 
But they've been watching Jesus, and they've been watching the other disciples, and they've noticed, they, these guys don't fast. So they ask Him, why don't you fast like we do? And as I mentioned this morning, Jesus comes back with a kind of a two-part answer. First, um, He says in verse 15, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So he's basically saying, now's not the time, because, because they're with me, they're in my presence, and, and fasting represents mourning. And this is not a time for mourning, this is a time for rejoicing, this is a time for feasting, this is a time for celebration, because the bridegroom is in the house, so to speak. Celebrate. Celebrate. Not, not a time for affliction and mourning, it's a time for feasting and celebration. So that's the first part of his answer. He's just saying this is, this is, bad, this is the bad time. It's the wrong time. It's not time to fast. If, it, it's almost like he's, well, I think he is, he's implying, if you knew, if you really understood who I am, you would be feasting as well. Then, the second part of his answer as I said this morning, it's a little more difficult. And this is one I want to go back over again tonight. No one puts, verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. Or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So in this second part of his answer, he's basically saying, look, you, you don't mix the new and the old. An old piece of cloth cannot be patched up with a new piece of cloth because the new piece of cloth is unshrunk. And so when you, when you patch up the hole with it, then it's going to go through its shrinking process and it's just going to tear away from the old piece of cloth and make the rip or the hole, whatever it is, it's just going to make it worse. It's not going to fix it. It's going to make it worse. The new and the old don't agree. They can't, they can't be uh, uh, mixed together. There's, there's not a consistency there. And then he 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 presents the same truth the same principle in a different metaphor new wine versus old wine and new wine skins versus old wine skins as i said this morning these are these bottles if you want to call them that that they would use the wine skins were were animal skins and they go through a process of expanding and eventually they they can't expand anymore so you've got an old wine skin that it's expanded all that it can stretched all that it can and they've been using it, filling it with uh, wine or whatever liquid and drinking from it. And now, if you pour new wine in there, which is still in the fermenting process and still expanding itself, what's going to happen is it's going to blow up the old wineskin. And you're going to have a mess. I know Leslie was trying to... What were you trying to mix that time? You, you, we, had a, we had an explosion in the kitchen. You're putting Kool-Aid and... She put, she's trying to make flavor. We used, to, we used to do that a lot with different fruit, fruit juices and stuff. You pour them into club soda 
And it's good. You know, you could take a, like just, a, you know, straight cranberry juice or something like that, mix it 50-50 or whatever with club soda, and you got a, you got a good carbonated uh, fruit drink, healthy, you know, and plus it's, all, it's carbonated. It's almost like drinking a Coke. So she's going to do it with Kool-Aid, you know, and make, make carbonated Kool-Aid. And she dumped the Kool-Aid into the uh, big bottle of carbonated water, and, and it was like Old Faithful in, uh, <laughs> in, in Yosemite. All over the kitchen. Whew, red Kool-Aid just went everywhere. Uh, thank the Lord nobody was injured uh, severely, but um, it was a mess. And... Uh, uh, all over the place. So that's what he's saying. You, you're going to have a mess on your hands because the new wine's going to make the old wine skin explode. So, what you got to have for a new wine is a new wine skin. You pour new wine into new wine into a new wine skin, and then they can expand together. And the, new, the new wine, as it goes, the fresh wine, as it goes through its fermenting process, it expands, and the uh, the, the skin will be stretching at the same time. And, and you won't waste any. So new wine goes with new wine skins. New cloth goes with with a new garment, and um, you don't have a problem that way. So what we did this morning? How, how what is Jesus talking about? What what does this have to do with the question? Why do we, John's disciples, John the Baptist? Why do John the John the Baptist's disciples? fast, and the Pharisees and their disciples fast, and Jesus' disciples are not fasting. That's the question. Why do, you, why do we fast and you don't? What, what they're asking is, why do we live such strict um, religious lives, lives of piety, why, why are we so disciplined and your disciples are not? You're just, you're, you're feasting. And I think what he's saying is this. That kind of religious activity, that kind, let's, let's put it this way. That kind of righteousness, that view of righteousness where it's all wrapped up in, in, uh, um, Activity, outward works, ceremonial cleansings, um, some, well, yeah, ceremonial cleansings were, were prescri- actually prescribed by the law. These, these are the kinds of things that both the Pharisees and the disciples of, uh, of John would have been doing. All the, the, the baptisms and so forth. Those kinds of things, the, the sacrifices... And then all of the extra stuff that the Pharisees had added in, the man-made traditions, the, all of that kind of religious activity where righteousness is seen as being in the work. You know, you do this and you are doing righteousness. Not just in a practical way, not, not just to say uh, that's the right thing to do, but to say... That actually makes me approved by God. I'm actually doing good in a, in a kind of a ultimate sense. That view 
of righteousness, I think Jesus is saying, is the old garment. It's the old wine. Now, let me, let me hopefully not be confusing here because we're, 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 at work, we're working with two different groups here. And this is one thing that to me is so interesting about it and at the same time so difficult about it. If Jesus were simply talking to the Pharisees, we could say, well, now, when he, when he uses these analogies, old wine, old cloth, he's obviously talking about hypocrisy. Because, boy, were the, were the Pharisees hypocritical, right? And, and he, he uh, indicts them for that repeatedly. So if he were just dealing with the Pharisees, we could say, surely what Jesus has in mind here is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he's comparing that. That's the old wine. And he's comparing that to... Um, the genuineness, the genuine righteousness of, uh, you know, of, of, of his self, of his kingdom. Uh, well, that, that, that is true, but, but that's only part of it because he's not just dealing with them. He's also dealing with the disciples of John, which, as I said before, we don't really have any reason to think their motives are wrong, that they're, that they're, uh, keeping of the law is perverted. So we've got a couple of things at play there. So let's try, try to lump it all together this way. Um, well, let, let me let me do it this way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep them separate, and then we'll try to then we'll try to put them together. All right. So let me start with the old wine of the Pharisees. The old wine of the Pharisees. Their tradition. Now this is kind of the bottom line in their in their hypocrisy. They were hypocrites. Like I said, Jesus called them that repeatedly. Um, their tradition, some of it was uh, legit. Some of it was part of the, uh, the law handed down. Uh, but much of it, what they would call the tradition of the elders, uh, much of it was not. Just, it was just traditions they had accumulated down through the years. And they had begun to teach, uh, you know, this is right. This, you know, just for example, you know, you got a Sabbath day's journey. You know, the law said you don't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, they they had to, or felt like they had to figure out how you how you're going to apply all that. So so they came out with all of these rules concerning what is considered work and what is not considered work. And one example is on the Sabbath day's journey. Um, if, if you go, and I don't remember what the distance is, but if you go a certain distance on the Sabbath, you know, within that distance, walking, you're okay. But once you go beyond that distance, whatever it was, half mile, mile, I don't remember what, it, you know, whatever it was, once you go beyond that distance, now it's considered work. And you're breaking the Sabbath. And they came up with all kinds of laws like that. Hasn't changed much. Apparently, a friend of mine was in Israel. Uh, about 20 years ago, and uh, on the Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath, he, he's going up to his room in his hotel, and they have the Sabbath elevator. elevator. <laughs> and that elevator automatically stopped at every floor so that you didn't have to push the button, so that you're not working on the Sabbath. And so you get on that elevator, and it just, it just stops at every floor. And the doors open 
And, uh, and then, you know, when the Sabbath is over, it goes back to operating by the buttons. So the Pharisees had all kinds of tradition, man-made tradition mixed in with God's law. And their tradition was more important to them than the commandment of God. Let me say that again another way, because it's saying the same thing. Their tradition was more important to them than the Word of God. Um, Matthew 15, Jesus really highlights this. And uh, Lord willing, we'll deal with this again when we get to chapter 15. Um, But let me go ahead and read it now, or at least some of it. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Notice that. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So, So they see Jesus' disciples, in this case, eating without washing their hands. And uh, they're not talking about getting rid of germs. It's, it's a ceremonial washing, purification that, that they would go through. And it's extra biblical. I mean, this is not uh, something commanded in the law. This is something that the Pharisees have added on. You must go through this ceremonial washing before you eat. And so this is the tradition of the elders. And so they're, in this case, indignant because Jesus' disciples are not observing this. And verse 3, He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Jesus, um, as He did characteristically, answered the question with a question. <laughs> Instead of a straight answer, and uh, and boy, what a powerful question! They're they're enraged because the disciples are transgressing. That is, they're they're violating, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, "Look, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition?" And then he gives them an example in verse four: "For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother.'" And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. There's the commandment. Honor your father and your mother. The penalty for disobedience is the death penalty under Old Testament Jewish law. Mosaic law. Clear enough. But, verse 5, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have gained, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Now, what they were doing was this. They they were um, taking money, receiving money, honoring your father and mother would be, in in this case, would be uh, helping them in a monetary sense. In other words, uh, you know, when you're a child, you're growing up, your parents take care of you. So when you get old or, or your parents get old, you take care of them. When you get old, your kids take care of you. That's the idea here. You, you provide for them in a monetary sense. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's commanded. God commanded that. And the penalty for disobedience is capital punishment. Death. But here's what they were doing. They would say, look, you give that money, that money that's supposed to go to your father and mother, 
You, you put it in the treasury over here. You, you put it toward the temple for the priests or for the Pharisees, the religious teachers, leaders. You give that money to us and God will let you slide on that business about honoring your father and your mother. Because after all, you're putting it in the ministry. And this is more important than honoring your father and your mother. So, so you, you do that and we will release you from your obligation to provide for your parents. Now Jesus said, you do this in verse 6, and thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. He's saying your, your tradition is actually voiding out the commandment of God. Now, let me, let me say this, because I'm running out of time quick here, but I, I, I want to be clear on this. Tradition is not necessarily bad. We, we have a lot of traditions uh, that, that we observe, um, it, it, well, e- even as individuals in our lives, but, but also as a church. Every church does. We have a lot of traditions that are not given to us by the Scripture. You know, meeting at 6 o'clock on Sunday night. That's traditional. It's not required. A lot of churches don't do it anymore. And I've heard, uh, you know, a lot of uh, comments that, you know, people kind of uh, grieving over that. Well, um, you know, I mean, I've got mixed feelings about it. It would be great if there was so much interest that the churches couldn't shut the doors, you know. I mean, if everybody was demanding to get in and hear the Word of God, I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, everybody would be glad to open. On the other hand, it's not commanded, right? It's, it's not a commandment. It's a tradition. Tradition is not necessarily bad. It can be good. I think meeting like we do, um, you know, it's a good thing. Meeting, meeting on the first day of the week, um, meeting... At the times we do are fine. Scripture doesn't tell us what time to meet. But uh, it, there's nothing wrong with that tradition, I would say. Tradition is not necessarily bad. It's also not necessarily good. And here's one way we can know when it's not good. When the tradition causes us to violate a command of God, we have definitely Crossed the line. That's what Jesus is saying is happening in this case. Your tradition, allowing people to give to the quote ministry rather than taking care of their father and mother, that tradition is causing you and other people to violate the command of God. And what you're doing is is making the commandment of God of no effect. You're voiding out God's Word. So just like, you know, if you you write a check and then you change your mind, and what I always do is write in big letters what my mother taught me to do. I don't know if... But I always write in great big letters across there, void. That means that check is no good. And that's what he's saying. You're, you're voiding the command of God. You're saying this commandment is no good because we've got a better idea. And look at his next word for them, verse 7. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Why? Because 
they, they pretend all of this obedience. That's what their whole life is about, isn't it? They're Pharisees. They're set apart for the very purpose of doing the will of God. That's what the word Pharisee means. It means separated ones. So this, their whole life revolves around this facade. They're pretending to be people who obey God's commands. We, all of you people are tax collectors and sinners. We obey the commands of God. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. And by the way, the word hypocrite here means pretender. Pretender. They were the, uh, you know, like, they were the original great pretenders, I guess. You know, like the platters. But, uh, okay, some of you never heard of the platters. That's... Hypocrites. Now, listen to what he says. He quotes from Isaiah 29:13. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That kind of hypocrisy is, is, is the antithesis of genuine heart-engaged worship. Jesus says, you, you honor me with your lips, you honor the Lord with your lips, but your heart, now this is what matters, your heart, your heart is far from me. That's the contrast. So this, this is the old wine of the Pharisees. It's false religion. It's hypocrisy. They're all about empty religious activity. Ah, we have to move through this one quicker. The old wine of the disciples of John. Now this is where to me, that, again, I'm going to confess, it gets really tough here. But again, really interesting as well. Let me, let me try to do it this way. If, if you remember, when, when we went through the book of Hebrews, what... Can you, I know, I know I'm, this is kind of, the, kind of putting you on the spot here, but what was kind of the main theme of the book of Hebrews? What, what's happening there? What? Supremacy of Christ, because there's a transition taking place. Now, the writer of Hebrews is not saying, look, and again, maybe you kind of remember as we, as, uh, how we dealt with it when we went through it. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, all of you Jews, you know, he's writing to Hebrews, all of you Jews, um, you're all, you're all wrong. For, for being involved in, in you know, the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood. No, what he's saying is there, there's a transition taking place and we have a better covenant now. We've got a better priest now. We've got a better sacrifice now. We've got better promises now. <laughs> That's what he's saying, because there's a transition. And so he says, the old is fading away. It's fading away. And it's fascinating because that's exactly how it happened. Now, you, you can read in the New Testament about the day Jesus was crucified and God tore the veil in the temple. And, and I'm sorry I'm moving through this fast because I don't have time to explain all this. But there's a veil in the temple that separates the people from God, even the priest. 
except for the high priest, he was allowed to go in there once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the nation and for himself. But rest of the time, even the high priest, that veil separated him from the very presence of God. Nobody was allowed in there. And when Jesus, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished and He died, God tore the veil in half, <laughs> opening the way to the Holy of Holies. But even with that, Judaism wasn't done away with. Uh, and I, I mean, the temple was not done away with today. I mean, as far there are Jews out there. But I mean, uh, that practiced Judaism. But the temple worship continued for a time. Not for long. Jesus had already said, the day's coming. Matthew 24, Luke 21. He said, this place, Jerusalem, is going to be surrounded by armies. And there's not going to be one stone left upon another. They're going to lay it flat. And that happened in 70 A.D. Roughly 36, 37 years after Jesus was crucified. And from then on, from 70 A.D. to May of 2001, there's no temple to offer sacrifices in. Isn't that amazing? It, it don't exist. Under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices have to be made in the temple in Jerusalem. That is the place, that's the locus, that's the, the geographic spot where God has to be worshipped in order for it to be right worship, true worship. And God in His providence ended that. If He hadn't, it'd be there today. God in His sovereignty ended that. The, the, the Romans moved in. Uh, Titus, the Roman general, moved in in 70 A.D. and there was a long siege. I forget how many months it was. It was a horrific time, which again, uh, Jesus describes in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Uh, tribulations such as they had never known. It was a horrific period of time for the Jews. And then eventually the Roman soldiers just uh, sacked the city and set everything, including the temple, on fire. They, they, laid it, they laid it level with the ground. Just like Jesus had said. So, this is, there's a transition taking place from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Just like in the book of Hebrews. Changing priesthoods from Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron, to Jesus, a priest. Not, remember, He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of... What? Priests come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not a Levite. Who? No? Well, yeah, Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah also. Jesus from the tribe of Judah. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it's a, whole, it's a different priesthood. It's not... Uh, he's from a different line, not the Aaronic priesthood. So the writer of Hebrews says is telling us that the Levitical priesthood is replaced with Jesus, who's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the idea there is e eternal priesthood, where the Levitical priest served until they died. Jesus never dies, so he, he serves as high priest forever. So there's a new high priest. There's a new sacrifice. Again, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. No more lambs, goats, turtle doves. None of that has to be offered for sacrifice for sins anymore. Jesus 
made the ultimate sacrifice when He gave Himself once for all. And there's a better covenant. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer in better promises. Not, not the land of Canaan, the, the geographic spot over there, but the heavenly Jerusalem. Glory. Eternity with God. There's a transition taking place. So things are changing. So we're going to assume that the disciples of John had, had the right heart attitude. They're not, they're not engaged in all of the hypocrisy that the Pharisees are engaged in. But they are still worshiping the old way. Outward form, location. In other words, there's a proper way to do things. There's a proper place to do things. And I think, I think, if I'm understanding this correctly, that's the old wine of the disciples of John. Or you could say of all Judaism. That's the old wine of the Jews. And so Jesus is, is saying, these disciples of mine, I'm, I'm doing something new with them. Something new happening here. And you can't mix the old and the new. He, he didn't come to reform Judaism. He didn't come like they thought to reestablish the physical nation of Israel in the land of Israel. His kingdom is spiritual. And the worship now is not in a place. Again, John 4. Read his conversation with the woman at the well. Worship now, it's not location and form that matters. It's the Spirit. It's the heart. True worshipers, Jesus said, worship Me in spirit and in truth. That can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a temple in Jerusalem. You don't have to um, go through the ceremonial activity. You don't have to offer animal sacrifices. You have to believe. Your heart, your heart has to be engaged. It's a heart. Here's, here's the new wine. It's a heart matter. Totally. So that God says, I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And you don't pour the new wine of the Spirit into empty tradition, into the wineskins of empty tradition, man-made tradition, or even Old Covenant worship. He's doing a new thing. And that's why I said this morning, 
Before I I even repeat this, let me say again, not all tradition is bad, but it, it has to be subservient to the Word of God. Tradition has to be tested in this way. Does it in any way compromise the commandment of God? One, one quick example comes to mind. Um, Paul in Corinthians and Romans 14, you've got some who uh, drink wine, some who don't. You've got some who eat meat, some who don't. And, and Paul is saying, that's not an issue. Because that's not what the kingdom of God is about. If you make that an issue, you're not walking in love. You're transgressing the commandment of God. Your tradition, I don't drink wine. I don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian. Your tradition is causing you to act in an unloving way towards your brother and sister in Christ. And so at that point, tradition is crossing a line where you're you're violating God's commandment. So again, I want to be clear. Not all tradition is bad. If I thought that, I wouldn't be standing here. This tradition, okay? Pulpit. Tradition. You don't need them. They're not necessary, except to hold your book up. I mean, in your Bible, you know. But there's nothing holy about it. It's tradition. And by the way, the reason it's here, because during the Reformation, they once again put the preaching of the Word back at the center of worship. And so to symbolize that fact, they put the pulpit in the center of the room to make that statement. It's a tradition. And in that sense, I think it's a good one. Again, I don't think it's necessary, but, but insofar as what it stands for, I think it's, it's good. So tradition is not necessarily bad. There are good ones. They're bad if they make you violate God's command. They're bad when they become a point of tension and the traditions become more important than loving one another. The Pharisees loved their traditions more than mercy. Jesus said, look, go and learn what this means. I will, He's speaking there as God, I will have mercy, not sacrifice. Every time Jesus is extending mercy to somebody, the Pharisees are complaining. He's violating the tradition of the elders over there. They're healing people on the Sabbath. They don't, they, don't, they don't care. They don't care about the people. It's all about sustaining the traditions. That's dangerous, dangerous, dangerous ground. One, one more point here and we're done. This I just find fascinating. Go, go with me to Luke chapter 5 for a minute. I, I think... Um, Really, I think this is to be taken as a, as a as a warning. I'm, Luke chapter five. I think Jesus is saying it just matter of factly, but it seems to me like uh, as a warning. Now, this, now this is Luke's account of the same teaching. Look at verse thirty nine. After he explains about new garments, old garments, new wine, and old wine skins, vice versa. 
Um, then he says in verse 39, And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Now, I think that's a statement about human nature. The, the old wine, if, if, we're, if we're interpreting this correctly, the old wine is tradition of men, perversion of the Word of God. Or, the old wine is the old way of worship that has, you know, the, the types and the shadows that have now been replaced, eclipsed, by the substance. Christ is here. Don't worship the types and shadows. Worship Christ. Old wine, new wine. But what does Jesus say? Anyone who's tasted the old wine, or, or He puts it in the negative form, no one having drunk the old wine immediately desires new. They say the old is better. This is the way we've always done it. We like it this way. This is good. This is good wine. But, but is it what God's doing? Is God in it? The truth. God's truth is always fresh. New. And I don't mean by that that it changes, that it acclimates to, uh, to the times and the culture. I'm not saying that. I'm saying... That for every time and culture, for every um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, you have different attitudes in different ages, and and it 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 transcends all of that, so that the same truth, God's truth, eternal truth, is applicable in every situation. It's always, in that sense, it's always fresh. It's always new. But isn't it strange? People desire the old. Even if it means missing what God's doing. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for New Testament. Well, we're thankful for all revelation, Lord, that You've given us in Your Word. And the New Testament revelation that we have. Christ has come fulfilling all of the old. We no longer have types and shadows. We have the very substance in Jesus Christ. Lord, may You do a work in all of our hearts so that we would love You above all things, and not, not put anything else, self, traditions, careers, hobbies, not put anything else in Your place. May our religious life um, not be hypocritical. <clears throat> May we not be in love with forms and ways of doing things, may we be in love with You and always receptive.
to your voice, seeking your will. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dismissed. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.